Hello and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Episode 11, Bioelectrical Reorganization. We begin this episode where we left off last time. BJ was giving us an understanding of human energy and how it worked in the human body. For those who have been following along, BJ referenced an, a medical doctor by the name of George Washington Cryle. I won't waste time mentioning his contributions to medicine since we covered that extensively in our previous episode, but know that he was a highly respected figure in the specialty of surgery and for innovating nerve blocks which prevented patient shock when going under the knife. BJ stated that Dr. Cryle's thesis on the bipolar nature of the human body was the closest that medical men came to understanding the chiropractic principle. This thesis, if developed, would lead medicine to the understanding that there is such a thing as human energy and that electricity is its generated byproduct. BJ found Dr. Cryle's thesis of great importance so much that he dedicated a significant amount of pages in volume 25 to it. So this is where I'm going to let everyone know in advance that we have about 120 pages of quoted references to Dr. Cryle, as well as other supportive literature that BJ thought of interest to include. While it's interesting to read and understand the medical thoughts of the time on human energy, it can be a bit dry. So in an effort to move things forward, get back to chiropractic, but still be diligent in reading page for page, I've decided not to provide a post-reading commentary. We have 120 pages of medical research to get through. Put the coffee on because we have a long road ahead. With that, we begin our reading from volume 25, page 89. The Bioelectrical Reorganiza Reorganization of Disabled Organs and Tissues If physiologic activity is the equivalent of electric stimulation, then electricity is apparently the means by which cells are organized, for, as Matthews points out, if the eyelids of puppies be kept closed, the related brain cells will not be developed. If the nerve supply to muscles is cut off, the muscle cells become disorganized. But electricity will reorganize them. When limbs are fractured or soft parts injured, voluntary exercise best reorganizes the muscles and nerve cells from the disorganization of disuse. Children who are not allowed to play do not develop strongly. That is to say, their muscles are not organized by the electric energy of exercise. If groups of muscles are not used, they are not so well organized and become weak. It is probable that play and exercise set in motion electric forces by means of which children are systematically built up into all-round physical efficiency. Next in value to voluntary exercise, 
which exercises the driving nerve cell as well as the driven muscle, is electric stimulation of the muscle. Electric stimulation restores the muscle quite as well as voluntary stimulation. But electric stimulation does not as readily reorganize and build up the deteriorated nerve cells. The effect on the organism of the injection of foreign proteins, as shown by Vaughn, is similar to, if not identical with, the effects of infections. The mechanism of the action of the infections may therefore be regarded as the same as the mechanism of foreign protein reactions. The injection of excessive amounts of foreign protein and the absorption of the toxins of infection produce similar effects and involve certain essential parts of the same mechanism as the emotions and muscular exertion. This statement is based on the following phenomena. <clears throat> Each produces an increased output of adrenaline, a first stage of hyperchromatism of the brain cells, followed later by chromatolysis, increased thyroid activity, increased body temperature. As a result of each, if excess fatigue is produced, the mechanism may be acutely worn down and com completely overcome in death. The organism may be partly reduced by any one of these causes, carried further by another, and finally broken by still another. Their effects are interchangeable. Each produces increased electric conductivity of the brain in the acute phase, and in the stage of exhaustion, a decreased electric conductivity of the brain. Each produces increased nervousness and lowering of thresholds to other stimuli. The first practical question is this. Is the response of the organism to an infection an imposed injurious mode of attack by the invading microorganism as a means of killing man and other animals? Or is this response one of the evolved means by which man and animals defend themselves against the attacking microorganisms? Assuming it to be the latter, let us analyze the mechanism of this theory. If our theory is Oh, assuming it to be the latter, let us analyze the mechanism of this counter-defense of man against the microorganism in the light of the bipolar theory. If our theory is correct, we must point out the sequence of events from the absorption of the toxin through the period of furious response to recovery or death and point out the mechanisms which are involved. We must show that electric energy fabricated in the brain is an essential factor in the reaction. We must show that the muscles participate actively, that the adrenals are active, that the thyroid participates. We must show why a rise of temperature is of benefit, why there is no sweating in the first stage, why there may be chills. We must show why the temperature falls during the night. We must show why there is nervousness, loss of mental power, loss of muscular power. And last, and certainly not of least importance, we must show why, in an acute, overwhelming infection, there is shock and collapse. 
with diminished instead of increased metabolism as in the earlier stages, and why under such circumstances death is usually inevitable. The Participation of the Brain It is common knowledge that deep narcotization with morphine reduces the power of the brain to drive the organism to transform potential energy into heat or into mental or muscular work or to express emotion. We may suppose that for some reason morphine prevents the electric fish from transforming energy into electricity. In infections, morphine diminishes fever. In the acute phase following the injection of toxins, there is an increase in the conductivity of the brain. In the later stages, there is a depression. Morphine minimizes these changes. After, de after decapitation, or when the muscles are cut off from connection with the brain, there is no febrile response to the injection of toxins. It would seem, therefore, that the brain cells respond to the presence of foreign proteins or of toxins by increased oxidation, thus causing an increased fabrication of electric energy, which in turn drives the organism to make a febrile defense. The participation of the muscles. That the muscles are the principal mechanisms activated by the brain in the response to infection is suggested by the facts that they produce from 50 to 75% of the heat of the body. They show fatigue and histologic change as a result of high fever. They are the active agencies in chills. Fever. We have suggested the mechanism by, wit, by means of which increased chemical activity, including fever, is produced. But the following question remains. What adaptive purpose is served by the increased temperature? This question is of peculiar significance in view of the obvious fact that this mode of defense is itself injurious to the organism, sometimes causing permanent injury or death. First of all, we may assume that the chemical invasion of bacteria can be met only by a chemical defense. That is, that the foreign protein molecule in a foreign environment will be split up more readily than, it, than is the living protein molecule of the defending organ. Therefore, the more intense the chemical action of the defense, the more certainly and readily will the foreign protein, living or dead, be split up. That is to say, the defense of the body against foreign proteins, such as toxins, is a purification by fire. Why does the temperature fall during the night? The foregoing discussion suggests that it is because the brain, being the driving battery, must be recharged. This recharging process is probably accomplished during sleep, but in order that the chemical defense may be as little interrupted as possible, the periods of sleep are light and short. During sleep, the temperature falls because the brain is driving the mechanism less forcibly. All of the brain does not sleep, however, nor do all the glands or involuntary muscles. Hence, the temperature remains above normal, although it usually falls the day level. Thirst. When the biologic bipolar mechanism is excessively driven in a strong defense 
against foreign living and dead proteins, large quantities of water are used. The need of abundant water in the operation of a bipolar mechanism has been described. That that need is magnified in the mechanism driven by infection is obvious. This need is manifested by thirst. If our conception that living processes are due to the operation of electrical forces acting in a bipolar mechanism is correct, then mental processes such as ideation and memory cannot, cannot be exceptions to what we conceive to be an all-embracing law. The intangible nature of these processes and the fact that we are dealing with infestimal forces and infinitesimal particles of matter make a demonstrable explanation impossible. Nevertheless, on the basis of what is demonstrable, both by the gross and microscopic structure of the brain, by the demonstrated laws which govern electric forces, and by certain experimental evidence, we conceive that mental processes are subject to the bipolar law. Insofar as the conscious operations of the mind are concerned, these processes of progressive orientation of facilitated paths presumably begin with the birth of the individual. On this conception, it is not difficult to understand why the nerve fibers find their way so inevitably from the brain to the muscle or gland. Electricity always travels from the positive to the negative pole, from the point or part of higher to the point or part of lower potential. Just as lightning travels from the clouds to the earth, so the current would pass from the brain toward the muscle or, or the gland with the final laying down of the, of the facilitated pathway, the nerve fiber. In like manner, just as the lightning may pass from cloud to cloud, that is, from a cloud of higher to a cloud of lower potential, so pathways may be formed from brain cell or group of brain cells to brain cell or group of brain cells. We can easily imagine that if the clouds contained the needed material and if there was a continuous electric strain between a stationary cloud and the earth or between a cloud of higher and a cloud of lower potential, in due time there would be a constructed a conducting path corresponding to a nerve fiber from the cloud to the earth. Moreover, this conducting path would be specific for the quality and quantity of current that created it. So within the brain, the path created by the electric current instigated by the impingement of light rays on the retina would be specific for identical light rays. The facilitated path created by the electric current initiated by the impingement of sound waves upon the nerve endings in the ear would be specific for identical sound waves. The following facts may be cited in support of this conception of the formation of facilitated pathways in the white matter of the brain, which we conceive to be the foundation of mental processes. 1. There are no myelin sheaths in the white matter. 2. 
The white substance contains many neurofibrils, which are apparently specialized pathways. 3. As Kajal has shown, in certain parts of the brain, in children from 5 days to a month old, or in monkeys or rabbits some days old, it is possible to trace the entire length of certain of these fibers, the length of which becomes extended and their connections increasingly complicated as the age of the animal or individual increases. As he says, the extension, the increase, and the multiplication of appendices of the neurones is not otherwise, re is not otherwise arrested at birth, but continues, and nothing is more striking than the difference which exists between the newborn and the adult man from the point of view of the length and the number of the cellular ramifications of the second and the third order. Thus an action, or a memory or a thought, may be produced by the physical energy of sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch, or pain, which in turn fires certain brain cells that in turn fire certain muscle cells or certain other brain cells, producing new ideas or awakening memories. And in turn, these thought waves or new ideas or memories may also send a charge over facilitated pathways, firing the same muscles, stimulating the same glands as those stimulated when the electric current, which originally produced the facilitated pathway, made its original impression. From a superficial point of view, this last type of action would be regarded as an act of will. Such terms as the will, judgment, reflection, are but convenient terms for expressing, expressing what would appear in reality to be an intricate, specific action of a cell or group of cells upon a cell or group of cells. Education and training, according to this conception, would be the effects of any mild or fewer stronger charges passing over constantly changing facilitated pathways. In accordance with this conception, punishment, discipline, training, monomanias, broad-mindedness, vocations, all the several qualities of mind would mean the sum of the potential in the brain cells plus the original quantity and quality of current brought to the brain cells by an external or an internal stimulus, plus the facilitated pathways, plus the millions of possible lines of force or specific conducting paths, a sum which may be conveniently expressed by the one term, action patterns. If the bipolar theory is to stand it, must not only show a general plan of evolution from the original unicellular organism to the complex multicellular organisms of the higher animals and man, but it must explain the mechanism of cell division upon which depends not only the evolution from unicellular to multicellular organisms, but also the development of each multicellular organism from the single cell, the sperm, the ovum. It must account also for the variations and identities 
which constitute the physical characteristics of each individual. That is, it must explain how the physical characteristics of parents are transmitted to the offspring. While we must, of course, acknowledge our inability to supply solutions for these problems, nevertheless, the following suggestions are offered as indicating the possible role of electric energy in processes of reproduction. It should be considered, first of all, that no living organism is static, either in size or in function. According to our conception, life itself is due to a state of unbalance between the positive and negative elements in the protoplasm. The primary result of this state of unbalance within a cell, whether that cell be a separate organism, a protozoan, or a constituent part of a multicellular organism, is the initiation of processes of growth. According to our conception, life itself is due to the positive and negative electrical elements of protoplasm. We do not presume even to attempt to identify the electrical origin and development of, the, of each stage in the process of cell division. We do assume, however, that fundamentally, cell division is amenable to the law of bipolarity, which we believe is the basis for all living processes. It remains to offer a suggestion as to the possible manner in which the characteristics of the parent cells or of the parent aggregation of cells is impressed upon the new cell or on the descendant aggregation of cells. In accordance with the bipolar theory, the nucleus of the original unicellular organism, the positive pole was the protozoan of the, of the brain and central nervous system of the multicellular organisms. As we have noted above, the unicellular organism cannot function without a nucleus. It is the dynamic center, the control center, the organizing center. If the nucleus is removed from a unicellular organism, it ceases to function and cannot reproduce itself. We must conceive, therefore, that in the nucleus of the ovum must reside those potential qualities which are to govern its later activities. In the unfertilized ovum, the nucleus is balanced by the cytoplasm, hence exerts no influence upon it. As soon, however, as the nucleus of the ovum is reinforced by the nuclear spermatozoan of the male, a difference of potential is established, which becomes at once effective in the initiation of the processes of cell division and differentiation by means of which the new individual is constructed. These premises, however, do not explain how the reinforced nucleus of the ovum can construct out of the apparently unorganized cytoplasm of the ovum and its own structure, a new individual resembling its parents. It must be presumed that there exist in the cytoplasm and in the nucleus the physical antecedents of these structures and parts of the fully developed organism. Just as in many unicellular organisms, 
functions and part of the cytoplasm are differentiated to perform the functions respectively of indigestion, digestion, and elimination. So we may consider that in the cytoplasm and the nucleus may be found in miniature the organs and tissues of varying functions in the developed individual. Moreover, in the fertilized ovum are at once initiated electrical currents between the nucleus and the cytoplasm, by means of which the rudiments of the muscles, glands, and viscera begin to be organized. Electric currents which differ not at all from those which accomplish the further growth and development of the child after birth. Thus, each organ of a plant or of an animal may be regarded as a separate species and as such must furnish the specific energy to reproduce itself in the seed. Just as if the organ were leading a separate existence and reproducing itself as simpler organisms do. Sex organs have the ability to affect profoundly certain, certain other organs of the body, such as, for example, the brain, the thyroid, the adrenals, etc. If the diminutive cells of these sex organs can exert major influences on distant powerful organs, one would suppose the reverse would be true, and that each organ must exert a distinct influence upon the cells of the sex organs. An important point in our conception is that what is inherited is the pattern of energy, not the chemical elements of the parent. The atoms and molecules of the chemical elements in the developing, in the developing plant or animal are the building stones which are used by the energy of the primary physical unit. From identical atoms and molecules, therefore, this primary energy mechanism will build identical forms. If by the application of another form of specific energy, then that by which it was created, the physical structure of this labile unit is altered. A corresponding change in the related characteristics of the new individual will be carried on. For if living organisms are energy transformers, it would seem logical that the primary role should be played by energy, and the secondary by form and structure. If the removal of one testicle or one mammary gland during development is followed by an enlargement of the other, it indicates that forces at a distance are capable of controlling their growth. In example, the organism has a quota of specific energy which may be drawn upon selectively. When a rose or an apple tree is grafted, the graft will produce a flower or fruit after its own kind, and unlike the flower or the fruit of the bush or tree in which the graft was implanted. But the tree, which in turn grows from the seed of the flower or fruit of the graft, will in turn produce not the apple or rose of the graft, but an apple or rose like the tree or bush in which the graft was implanted. Why did the seed from the fruit of the graft not produce a tree whose fruit was like its own? 
it could only be because influences from the remainder of the tree sent organizing energy into the bud and fruit of the graft creating a miniature preform of the original apple tree in the seed. Just as the organizing energy of animals creates in the sex cells new animals bearing the characteristics of the parents. In brief then, our conception may be summarized as follows, as in the adult individual, his personality, his individual characteristics, result from specific vibrations in this or that part of the organism in response to environmental influences. The sum total of these electrical responses constituating his or her personality. So in the offspring, these initial specific vibrations carry through the development of new individual in external form in so-called mental characteristics, in physiological and in psychic tendencies, will determine the personality, the individual characteristics of the new individual. It is not expected that either the argument or the evidence which we have presented in support of our conception that man and animals are bipolar mechanisms will prove finally convincing. The only evidence whereby any theory regarding the laws in accordance with which the organism operates can be finally established will be either the successful construction of an organic cell or the ultimate subjection to experimental test of every so-called psychic as well as every obviously physical organic phenomenon. The impossibility of creating a living being on the model of a living being, however, does not invalidate the theory any more than the existence and structure of the atom is invalidated because man cannot construct an atom. If we are right in our assumption that the brain is the part of highest potential in the organism, the positive pole, then we would expect to find evidence that the rate of oxidation in the brain is higher than in any other tissue. We would also expect to find that as the result of stimulation, the positive and negative poles, the brain and the liver, would respond in opposite directions thereby increasing the difference in potential between them. In accordance with the bipolar theory, the state of iodism, which is the analog of hyperthyroidism, should be accompanied by an increase in the electric conductivity of the dominant tissues of the body. In accordance with the bipolar theory, Excision of the liver and excision of the adrenals should cause a decrease in the electric conductivity of the brain. In accordance with such a theory, one would expect that the injection of acids would decrease conductivity, and that whereas loss of sleep would decrease conductivity, sleep itself would restore the normal conductivity of the brain. The application of these tests was regarded as an essential to prove or disprove the validity of the theory. If a single one of these should fail, the entire theory must fail. This finding, if confirmed by later experiments, will be a strong indication that the temperature changes within the brain cannot be entirely, if at all, due to variations in the blood supply to the brain. 
it is obvious that neither heat energy nor any mechanical force can be transmitted by the nerve fibers to act as a catalyzing agent upon the various types of cells in the organism. Exciting in each type of, act of activity demanded for the performance of its specific function. The form of energy to be identified, therefore, must be intermolecular or chemical or electrical. Since electricity controls chemical and intermolecular action, and since chemical action, oxidation, controls the production of electricity in an electrical cell constructed after the pattern of the cells of the organism, we conceive that electricity liberated in the cells of the central nervous system by oxidation and conveyed to the cells by the nerve fibers acts as a catalyzing agent by means of which the energy in each cell of the organism is controlled by nerve action. In cells which are not innervated, the same structural arrangement is found, and in these cells also oxidation is the source of energy. Electricity is omnipresent in all forms of matter, in atoms, molecules, solutions, colloids. Electricity passes by means of conductors from a point of higher potential to one of lower potential always along the path of least resistance. At any point in its passage, the electric current is capable of transformation into heat, mechanical energy, or chemical energy. An electric current is produced by a generator or battery, whereby a difference of potential is maintained between the poles. Finally, of the utmost value is its support of the conception that the organism as a whole is operated by electricity should be cited the biological fact that the application of electricity to organs or tissues can make them perform all the functions which they normally perform under nervous stimulation. Heat in common with electricity and with light is radiant energy, but while the latter forms of energy are electronic phenomena, Heat is concerned with the activities of atoms and molecules. As heat is radiant energy, its manifestations are governed by the same primary physical laws as those which govern electric energy and light energy. Moreover, in its manifestations in living organisms and in inorganic matter, heat energy is in indissolubly linked with electric energy, light energy, and chemical energy. Conversely, heat promotes chemical action. When we consider that chemical action means an alteration of atomic relations, and hence of electronic relations, and that the relation between heat and oxidation is reciprocal, that heat promotes oxidation, oxidation promotes heat, the direct relation of heat to the electric phenomena of the organism becomes apparent. The source of heat within the organism has always been the subject of discussion. Lavoisier, being the first to prove that it is the result of the combustion of the tissues themselves. Following Lavoisier, various investigators have endeavored to locate the principal site of this combustion. In some specific organ or tissue, the lungs, the blood, the muscles, etc. 
It is only within comparatively recent years that it has been generally accepted that the combustion takes place within the living cells themselves. The purpose of this thesis has been to present certain evidence and discussions based upon the evidence and support that the theory that man and animals are bipolar mechanisms and that the organism not only is driven by electricity, but it, that it was originally created and constructed by electrical forces. Our thesis is based upon the fundamental conception that life is a dynamic not a static phenomenon, and that therefore, to attempt to define living processes in terms of their histological structure is as inadequate as to attempt to inter interpret the phenomena of the solar system in terms of the elements of which the sun and the planets are composed. The phenomena of the solar system are dynamic phenomena. The physicist has created that the phenomena of the molecule of the atom and the electron are dynamic phenomena. So also must the phenomena of living beings be interpreted. They are dynamic phenomena and can be interpreted therefore only in terms of that type of energy whereby they are produced. Any consideration of the structure of living organisms therefore must be related to the manner in which that structure is utilized in the dynamics of the organism as a whole. Certain characteristics, therefore, which pertain to all living organisms should be summarized here, since upon them the development of the bipolar theory primarily depends. 1. The organs, the cells, the functioning parts within the cells are interrelated by means of nerve fibers and protoplasmic bridges, forming a syncytium Sedgwick. The energy units of the protoplasm itself are interrelated by means of a meshwork of protoplasmic threads. Living matter, therefore, is structurally equipped for a universal circulation of energy. 2. As universally present in living matter as the intercommunicating fibers or lines of force, are the lipoid films. These films separate the cells from each other. They separate the electrolytic solution within the cells from the electrolytic solution in which the cells are suspended. They separate the nucleus from the cytoplasm and from the nucleolus. Lipoid films also bound the spherules and granules within the cell. They are universally present in protoplasm. 3. In living organisms, an acid-alkali balance on opposite sides of the dielectric films is maintained by a difference in the concentration of hydrogen and OH ions. 4. Living tissues have electric capacity. 5. Living tissues contain certain electrolytes among which potassium is of primary significance since it is radioactive and has the power, even in combination, of orientating other molecules at a distance. 6. Electric phenomena are always present in living matter. 7. The living transformer of energy obeys the same laws of the conservation of energy as do non-living energy transformers. 8. Irritability, assimilation, reproduction, 
the universal characteristics of living matter, as distinguished from non-living, are electric phenomena. 9. The structure of the molecules and atoms of living systems is that of a crystal. In the non-living crystal, the lines of force are static, and the crystal grows by accretion. In the living crystal, the lines of force are dynamic, and the crystal grows by reproduction. On the foundation of these universal characteristics of living matter has been constructed the bipolar theory, the argument in favor of which may be briefly summarized as follows. The living and non-living are chemically identical, the living differing from the non-living not in substance but in the utilization of non-living material for the construction of mechanical devices that have the power of transforming energy and of reproducing themselves. In accordance with the bipolar theory, these processes which distinguish the living from the non-living are due to electrical forces within the protoplasm, which endow the protoplasm with the essential qualities of irritation, assimilation, and reproduction. It is due to these electric processes that groups of the protoplasmic energy units become associated in cells. Within the cells, identical electrical forces produce the mitotic processes by which, of which, are formed the paired identical parts, each of which form, forms a new cell. And even before the protoplasm is formed, electric forces arrange the atoms and molecules as building stones, each in its own place, to form the essential structures of the protoplasm. Thus, the specific characteristics which differentiates the living animal organism from the non-living materials of which it is composed would appear to be the frequency and force of those electric discharges, rather than its static structure. An animal, therefore, is an energy phenomenon, rather than a form of phenomenon. On the basis of this assumption, it is necessary to identify the original source of the forces, which transmitted this characteristic to the atoms and molecules of the colloids within which the first living organism arose. This we may assume to have been the vibrant energy of light which obviously is the ultimate source of life. We thus assume that life may be defined as the expression of these specific energies emitted by atoms and molecules, which energies in turn were given them by light. In accordance with this conception, the composition of the living organism must be constantly changing. Electric energy governs the composition of the structure of the organism, and the composition and arrangement of the structure in turn makes possible the transformation of energy. That is, the energy and structure of the organism is constantly changing, and yet apparently the structure and the energy remain constantly unchanged. We concede that our thesis has not been finally proven. Final proof is lacking regarding practically every point. We concede that the bipolar theory would fail to explain living processes if any other form of energy than electric energy could be proved to be adapted to construct and to operate an organism which is identical with an analogous to that of the human organism. 
If any other force, such as heat or light or gravitation or intermolecular force or chemical action, could be universally fit into the great scheme of the living and the non-living universe as does electricity, then the electric or bipolar theory of living organisms would be without foundation. Among the various phenomena which are discussed by Loeb, those of heliotropism are especially susceptible of an electrical interpretation. We must, therefore, conclude that the light produces in an eye or an element of a photosensitive skin a reaction, a chemical reaction, which results in the formation of a certain mass of a reaction product. This mass acts on the peripheral nerve endings and brings about an as yet unknown change in the brain elements with which these nerve endings are connected. This change in turn affects the tone or tension of the muscles with which the brain elements are connected.